0: Hey folks, Coach Kevin here. Today we have another classic rewind for you. This episode originally aired back in December of 2021 and it was a hit, and for good reason. Our guest today is Holly Baxter and she literally wrote the definitive textbook on reverse dieting. And in this episode, she explains exactly what reverse dieting is and why it is critical for long-term sustainable weight loss. (laughs) Imagine this scenario, you're 30 pounds overweight, and in fact, you've been overweight pretty much all of your adult life. Perhaps you've lost some or all of this weight several times during the last 25 years. The times you've tried dieting have been awful. You were constantly hungry, you were cranky, and a few weeks into it, your sleep started to deteriorate, only making matters worse. You started to despise the treadmill, but you stuck with it through sheer will and determination. And you lost the weight and finally got to return to some sense of normalcy. But a year or so later, you're right back where you started. And perhaps you start the cycle all over again. You feel frustrated and defeated. Perhaps you've internalized your inability to permanently lose this excess weight as your personal failure. But you've decided that this time is going to be different. New year, new you. Instead of following a diet you found online or one that a friend suggested, you've hired a nutrition coach. And this nutrition coach isn't cheap, but they have a great reputation and a track record of helping people achieve long-term sustainable weight loss. And three months into this program, you've been dieting and keeping up with your exercise. Nothing crazy. You're a bit hungry some days, but it's quite manageable. Your workouts are three weight training sessions a week, as well as one cardio session a week. And on the other days, you've gotten into the habit of going on a long walk with your dog. You feel great, and you realize that you're halfway to your 30-pound weight loss goal. But then on your next check-in call, your coach tells you that they want you to stop dieting. In fact, they're going to increase the amount of food that you eat each day. Wait, what? Increase the amount of food you eat each day, but won't that cause you to gain weight? Your coach informs you that, yes, you'll likely see some weight gain, but just a little. And now you're thinking, well, hold on. I'm paying my coach to help me lose weight, not gain it back. What's the deal here? I was doing so good. I'm halfway to my goal. Why in the world would I want to backtrack now? Your coach patiently explains that you're moving into a reverse dieting phase that will last for the next 15 weeks. And you're thinking to yourself, reverse dieting? What is this BS? I'm here to lose weight, not gain it back. Hello, and welcome to the Over 50 Health and Wellness Show. I'm your host, Kevin English. I'm a certified personal trainer and nutrition coach, and my mission is to help you get into the best shape of your life, no matter your age. We have a great show for you today. Holly Baxter is here to talk to us about the benefits of reverse dieting. But before we get into that, I want to let you know that all month long in December, my 10-pound fat loss program is 50% off. This is an eight-week-long fat loss jumpstart program, and it's normally $300. But it's $150 for the remainder of this month. So if you're planning a weight loss resolution this coming New Year's and you'd like some guidance, take a look at this program. If you want to learn more, check out the podcast episode titled Coach's Corner, New Year's Resolution Diets, or you can head over to silveredgefitness.com and click the coaching tab at the top of that page. But make sure you use the coupon code silver50, that's silver50, all run together at checkout. Okay, enough shameless self-promotion, let's get on with today's show. To do an episode on reverse diets for a while now, what they are, and why you might consider them. And one of the foremost experts on this subject is Holly Baxter. Holly is a two-time natural world champion fitness model and has a master's degree in dietetics, is an accredited dietitian, is a fitness educator, and along with her husband Lane Norton, were early pioneers in the field of reverse dieting. And they even wrote the definitive book on the subject titled The Complete Reverse Dieting Guide. I started our conversation by asking Holly how she got into the fitness and nutrition space.
1: I grew up pretty sporty. I really enjoyed uh, track athletics, I did basketball, and I'm pretty sure my mom put us in just about every sport as kids uh, we could fit in the day or the 24 hours. So uh, I really enjoyed being active and. Having grown up in Australia, I think the likeliness of being able to excel as a female in a sport at a professional level is actually very low. Unlike the USA where, you know, soccer is really popular or hockey or I'm sure there are so many things that you can kind of probably do as a career. It's quite limited in Australia. I was pretty studious and that kind of just led me down the road to, well, you've got to make something of yourself. So I took the academic route instead. And decided to do my undergraduate degree uh, in food science and nutrition. And I had a huge interest in food and you know the composition of food back then. I still do, but it certainly moved to a different route now. And then I went on and did my master's degree in dietetics, so a qualified or graduate dietitian, and spent a bit of time actually in the clinical world, and quickly realised that. I really love and thrive on working with people that really aspire to, you know, create change and do the best that they possibly can and not so much people that, you know, felt like they just, they had to be there because their doctor had sent them. Right. I I really uh, enjoyed kind of moving into a private practice and then, you know, working with probably folks like those that are listening to you now. Yeah, that's how I got started, I guess, in the nutrition space. And yeah, I didn't really ever stop wanting to be an active person. I obviously had a lot less time. So, you know, team sports and things weren't really the option back then. I had to kind of do activity in the little free time I had, and that's what kind of got me in the gym. And that led me down a route of bodybuilding and competing as a bikini or a fitness competitor for maybe the last six, six coming up to seven years now. So yeah, it's been a very fun um an enjoyable road.
0: Yeah. Now you say you've competed for the last six or seven years in a row, and you've had some quite some success in that space, haven't you?
1: Yeah. So I kind of dived headfirst into it, and it's funny how I started. I was actually working with a lot of athletes at the time who had uh, an interest in in that field. I wasn't doing it. I was still just a regular gym goer, and I was a bit of a cardio bunny actually. I loved uh, high intensity training. I did boot camps. You know, I loved running. You know, size K like go hard and then be dead at the end. But one of my clients actually said to me, Oh, you know, the world championships this year for the Natural Bodybuilding Federation in Australia is in Dubai. God, you you shouldn't do that. And I was like, you know, that's not a bad idea. So I kinda did an eight week prep and got myself qualified and I landed in Dubai and took out my first world title for the INBA PMBA in twenty sixteen. So That was my first kind of taste for, you know, competing at the world level and, you know, being able to travel with it. And since then, I've competed for two different federations, the IFBB being one of them. But being an untested sport and me being a natural athlete and a drug-free lifetime athlete, I didn't really want to have the desire to keep going down that pathway because a lot of the competitors that I was up against, you know, they weren't natural athletes and I didn't really want or enjoy the look of that physique. So um, kind of stepped back into another federation that where, where I was better fitted. I didn't have to look like this crazy, muscular person. And I really enjoyed it. So, yeah, I've competed at world championships just this year for the WBFF and Kane second. So runner-up world champion just this year, which was awesome.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. So you're still currently competing. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I'm kind of having a bit of an off-season now and I'm not sure where I will go next year. I think fitness is always going to be something that was part of my life, and lifestyle, I'll never let that go. But as for getting back on stage, I don't know. I think, you know, I've got a lot of responsibilities, businesses, we have kids, so, you know, you've kind of got to prioritise and sometimes you're triaging, but uh, we'll have to see.
0: Right, right. I have to see where that goes. Yeah. Okay. But now, talk to us about what you do today, because you do. You had mentioned that you've got the the master's degree, and you do a lot of nutrition training. You do a lot of personal training. Talk to us about your practice today and what you're active in today.
1: Yeah. So I think if I was to describe like what I what I am and what I do, it would be a nutrition educator or a social media educator. My husband and I, we have a couple of different businesses in the Nutrition science or evidence based space. So, everything that we preach is supported with science. There's a lot of companies, unfortunately, or you know, individuals even that are very well known in the fitness space or as a sports person, but they aren't really backed with any science. So, that is really what we hold ourselves accountable to. We're a company of integrity. So, we have a team of nutrition coaches which are one-on-one, which is through a company called BioLane. And we also have an awesome nutrition nutrition coaching app, which is called Carbon Diet Coach. We currently have about 40,000 um, subscribers to that app. We've been up and running for just over 18 months now. And that is kind of the main stuff that we do. But then in the background, you know, I am working on, a, we have a supplement company, we do lots of education, so I kind of, you know, oscillate between all of those different things, not to mention you know, social media, education on YouTube, and trying to just help people, uh, you know, achieve their physique goals. So... It's
0: quite a bit. <laughs> it is quite a bit, yeah. So I, I love that you describe yourself. The way you started was a, as a nutrition educator, and certainly that's how I, I ran across you. You um, can find you on on Instagram. You're on YouTube. You're you're all over the place, all the yeah. socials, <laughs> right? But yeah, certainly you and both your husband both have this very you called it evidence based. It's very kind of no nonsense. Let's educate folks on nutrition, because what I like to say is, nu- while nutritional science can be vastly complex, or it is vastly mm-hmm. complex, really, the practical application of it doesn't have to be. But that's really not the way it's communicated, I think, to the general population, so that most folks are kind of left wondering, well, what should I eat? How much should I eat? And should I intermittent fast? Should I do keto? Should I, you know, whatever, the, whatever's hot today. So let's start here on our conversation, we now know that 70% of Americans are now overweight, obese, or morbidly obese. And that number is growing. What do you think that is? What what are the causes of that?
1: Look, I think it's a really interesting question. And I actually talk about this in uh, one of my recent presentations that we did when we were uh, traveling. And I think if we look at, you know, what is the cause of obesity and people being overweight, it would be naive to say that it is purely um, a result of, you know, inability to control one's hunger. It is so much more than that. It is a complex web of physiological factors, psychological factors, sociological factors. You know, people eat for different reasons and it is so much more than just, hey, I'm feeling really hungry, you know, I might eat something. So there is a lot of influence from the food culture that we currently live in, you know, especially, you know, here in America, it's even more so than what I've experienced growing up in Australia. The average family kind of eats out a lot, you know, takeout is abundant, like it's so common. And I think just over the years, it's become part of our culture. We are exposed to these highly palatable, very energetically dense foods, not just one macronutrient, it's, you know, carbohydrates and fats combined. We've got a lot of calories coming in and the social aspect makes that really difficult to manage. So, yeah, I think that's probably one of the main contributing factors, not to mention, you know, all of the other things that we we talked about. But I think where the problem still lies is people are successfully aimed to lose weight. I don't think that people have a difficult time losing their body weight. And we look at a lot of the epidemiological studies and long term um, studies, we see that people do a pretty good job at losing, you know, five or 10% of their body weight. The problem is being able to maintain it long term. And if we follow up on those long term studies, what we actually see is that a large majority of those people end up becoming the weight that they were when they started or they've actually gained more than baseline. So they now weigh more after that attempted diet. So I always find that really interesting. So it's what about the diet that is contributing to people becoming more and more overweight over
0: time? No, I love that you started that by acknowledging that it's a complex issue, right? People it's not just that we're lack the self control but it's this whole food culture it's the mm-hmm. reasons that we eat and i think you're right i think that while some people may have a hard time losing weight really our problem isn't losing weight our problem is maintaining healthy body composition right we see so much of the yo-yo dieting you know especially folks that are in, in my age demographic that over 50 50 60 mm-hmm. 70 Folks that have struggled with weight perhaps their entire lives have probably gone on dozens of diets. They may have lost the same 20 pounds over and over yep, again. absolutely. But the tragedy there is, to your point, is very, very often you don't just gain back that 10 pounds or that 20 pounds. You gain that back plus a little bonus, and, and it's a tough place to be, right? So let's talk about dieting. People have gone on diets for a long, long time, we have a, I could say we have a diet culture as well. Why don't diets work?
1: I think by and large, it is because we are choosing an approach that is extreme. So I actually really enjoy talking to this demographic, and I'll say 50 plus. It's kind of like I'm sitting down having a chat with my mom, but I got to be careful here because. Two of my closest friends are actually either close to 50 or over 50. So I'll watch what I say here. But I think the challenge is as we get a little bit older, you know, our lifestyles are drastically different from when we were in our 20s. And we can blame things like hormones. And, of course, there is – that's certainly one of the factors that plays into why we tend to gain weight as we age. And I want to address that really quick before I continue to move on. Sure. So yep. especially for women – as we go through menopause, our estrogen and progesterone levels, they do start to change and that that definitely impacts your day-to-day energy levels. So if you're not feeling very good because you've got low energy, well, of course, you're not going to be as motivated to go to the gym or get out for you know the game of tennis that you used to do or whatever your preference of activity was. So that lack of energy and motivation to be active starts to go down and now we have lower energy expenditure. And if we're not making up for that by reducing our calorie intake from our food, well, what happens? Of course, we're going to put on a little bit of weight. So, you know, this trend continues um, more and more over time and as we become less active, what tends to happen is that now we're not putting ourselves through the same kind of rigorous day-to-day activities. Maybe we aren't going to the gym as much as we were. And what happens is our lean body mass, our skeletal muscle mass starts to decrease. And the problem with that is our muscle mass or skeletal tissue is one of the driving or primary factors that helps increase our or contributes to our basal metabolic rate, which is our body's kind of essential energy requirements just to kind of keep the lights on. So as our muscle mass starts to decline, and that also happens, it's called sarcopenia, it happens with ageing, now we've got multiple factors that are contributing to decreased energy expenditure. We're moving less, our hormones are changing as we age, especially for women. We're not as active, we're not resistance training, and our energy requirements are going down. But guess what happens? Our preferences for food choices And our lifestyles are more and more sedentary. You know, as we get older, we probably live a little bit more of a lavish lifestyle. We've got more exposable income. We eat out more. We like the niceties of life. So it's just this multiple factors that drive us to increase our weight. And it is even more difficult then when we couple that with the desire to still lose weight. And that really leads me perfectly to, I think, the conversation about metabolic adaptation and reverse dieting. So I'm not sure if you'd like me to talk about that now or at some other tweet. But... Well, no, we're, I definitely want to get there.
0: And I want I want to pull that apart. But I think a couple of things that you said here, I'd like to just kind of dive into a little bit. So certainly, as a population in our 50s, 60s, and 70s, There is this idea of sarcopenia, right? That's age related muscle loss. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of our culture, the story is well, that's inevitable. But in fact, there are people out there doing work showing that people in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s can in fact build and maintain muscle mass. And you had talked a little bit about BMR, and I know you want to talk about metabolism here and that being increased. And you also mentioned in there briefly the importance of resistance training. So let's talk a little bit about, especially for my age demographic, and I suppose especially for the women listening out there. So this 60-year-old woman... Why would she want to pick up a barbell and do strength training in her sixties, or really for anybody in that age demographic?
1: Yeah, great question. So I think it, it's interesting if we look back to history because women traditionally were the ones that were in the gym doing resistance training. You know, it has a bit of a stereotype associated with it, and I know there's a lot of fear around that, especially if it's not something you've grown up with. I know. I can use my mum as an example. I mean, she definitely did not ever step foot in a gym. You know, she was a sprinter. She did a lot of activities, but the thought of her going to a gym and getting a membership was terrifying. Uh, And then there's a lot of stereotypes around, oh, well, if I lift weights, you know, I'm just going to get big and bulky. And I think a lot of people would envision like this huge muscular person and it's just not the case. But, you know, lifting and resistance training has multiple benefits. In addition to those that I just described about resistance training and adding muscle to our frame, being helpful for driving up our daily energy requirements, which means, hey, guess what? You get to eat a bit more if you carry some more muscle because it requires more energy to maintain. It also helps for a, a myriad of different chronic illnesses and conditions, not to mention You know, if you have more muscularity and strength as you age, now as we age and the risk of falls becomes greater than when we're, you know, in our early 20s and you you might have had a fall, now you've got some strength and cushioning to kind of protect you. Or maybe you prevent that from happening altogether because you've built, you know, a strong muscular physique where that is a significantly lower risk than to somebody that doesn't do any weights training and doesn't have, um, you know, any strength at all. So there are so many benefits to that. And not to mention thinking about the aesthetic um, appeal, you know, I think a lot of people would much prefer to be, you know, more muscular than body fat weight or gram for gram and a kilogram for kilogram. So, yeah, there are some of the reasons, I guess, why it would be important to resistance train.
0: Yeah, and you bring up some good points there. And I, I think that a lot of women, women in particular, are they have that fear of the barbell or strength training because they don't want to get big and bulky. And look, unless you're that 0.000% of that genetic outlier, you're not. I'm yeah. trying really, really hard to get big and big and bulky. And it's holy moly, it's just, it's just not happening. Uh-huh. And so also when I hear, especially females say, well, I don't want to get muscular. I want to be toned. That's the same thing. <laughs> what that toned look is muscle, and it's that reduction of body fat and that increase of muscle mass that gives you that toned athletic look. So yeah, really good points made there. And I think it was Dr. Gabriel Lyon who refers to muscle as the organ of longevity. Mm-hmm. So lots of great things that come along with adding that muscle in our in our later years, preventing falls or making you more resistant to injury, etc. Mm-hmm. So let's let's get back to the diet here. So there's been this prescription around forever. And it's especially going back to the, maybe the female population, it was Jane Fonda in the seventies. And then I think it was Denise Austin, maybe in the Mm eighties. And you had, you had referenced this earlier on your own journey, right? You started as kind of this cardio bunny. So there's been this whole idea of the way to lose weight is we're going to reduce calories and we're going to do lots of cardio. And that works until it doesn't. So talk a little bit about that prescription of eating less and doing tons of cardio. Is it advisable, ill-advisable? Does it work sometime, not some of the time? What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. So I think I can probably relate to this and I'll have to take myself back to my early twenties. I think that there is, again, there's a lot of benefits to having a good cardiovascular um, system and cardiovascular fitness, of course. So especially if you're somebody that is still doing a little bit of recreational sport, Certainly many sports have that requirement. If you've got good cardiovascular fitness, you can do the full basketball match or you can play the full game of tennis or whatever it is. And if we look at it from an energy expenditure perspective, certainly depending on the intensity, if you're doing a low or a light uh, intensity walk, you're going to be expending calories. Now, if you increase the intensity and you do a run, That's going to contribute to slightly more energy expenditure. Calories are being burned right through to, you know, if we look at the Olympic level, someone that's doing a a one mile run and they're going incredibly fast and they're expending probably the most amount of calories, right? So there are benefits to cardio as far as it will help you to burn energy. And that is a critical piece for weight loss. So people will often say, well, you know, I really want to lose weight. I'm going to do some more of these activities. And you will lose weight if you are you know, expending more calories than you are consuming. But how that actually pans out in the long term for your physique and the aesthetics is it doesn't contribute to building muscle or creating shape. So if I today completely stopped all of the lifting that I did and I just ran, 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 ran and did a lot of cardio, a lot of group fitness classes, I may very well lose weight on scale, but I'm going to start losing my muscularity, which means I'm going to start losing my nice shape that I have and I will just become a smaller, skinnier version of myself. So the benefits to uh, incorporating some resistance training there is that that type of exercise or activity not only contributes to expending calories. So if I go to the gym and I do a one-hour lifting session, I'm burning not only calories, but I'm doing a form or a modality of activity that also uh, elicits muscle protein synthesis, which is part of one of the necessary pieces for us to build muscle. So it has dual benefits. Calories expended, burning energy, and also helps with that um, muscle building piece.
0: Yeah, so let's pick this apart a little bit. So we know that if somebody's going to go out and do a 45-minute run at a moderate to brisk pace, mm-hmm. and another person's going to go in the gym and do some resistance training, I think the the logic has been in the past, well, that person doing 45 minutes of cardio is probably it during that event going to burn more actual calories than Mm -hmm. that person that's doing the lifting right but to your point there's there's more to the equation than just that and as an older population we know that we're going to preferentially lose that fast twitch muscle fiber type over that slow twitch muscle type right so as we ignore the strength training piece we're contributing kind of to that lean frail sort of look of that older person as opposed to a healthy vital muscular look to that person and to your point adding muscle to your body has it's not just the calories that you're burning while you're doing the activity that's important right i think what you're getting at is we're actually muscle is more metabolically expensive is it fair Mm -hmm. to say that if somebody who is doing consistent weight training Will they have a higher BMR? Will they have a faster metabolism? Will that contribute to weight loss in the long term?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that kind of is the exact definition of body recomposition. So, you know, you could you could continue to do a set amount of resistance training and consume a certain amount of calories. And over time, if you provided you are, you know, pr- providing enough mechanical attention, attention stimulus, to elicit mTOR signaling, which is, I guess, the signaling pathway that helps us create muscle as we add to our frame, as we add more muscle over time. Yes, that the cost to maintain that muscle is going to go up the more we have, and guess where it can get some of that energy? It can then tap into our own endogenous adipose or fat stores as a form of energy. So what we can then see is a bit of a partitioning effect where we're now seeing fat loss are taking place or our body fat levels are going down because it is using that fuel storage capacity to actually drive growth for muscularity. Now, how much of that energy is coming from our body fat stores? versus our dietary intake depends on the individual, but also depends on, you know, how many calories that person is eating. So the good thing is that is kind of what we call our body recompositioning.
0: Right. And that's certainly, that's a desirable state to be, right? If you're burning fat and building muscle or even maintaining Mm -hmm. muscle and burning fat, you're in a very healthy, good place, right? Okay. So we've determined that we would like to have a faster metabolism? What are some of the best ways to build a faster, healthier metabolism?
1: Well, I think we've covered part of that equation. So um, obviously, prioritizing your resistance training. If you're somebody that is primarily focused on cardio at the moment, maybe gradually reintroducing some form of resistance training. It doesn't have to be, you know, a huge change all at once. It can be done over time. And I think that's probably the smart way to do it too. You don't want to go from zero sessions to three or four a week overnight because you probably end up very sore and probably deter you from the gym. So I think, you know, over time, um, moving or shifting your activity towards a resistance trained approach would be the the first thing that I would recommend. Outside of your training efforts, I think we then really need to touch on the the diet piece and I'll start broadly with protein, and then I think we can take a look at um, calories and somebody's specific goals. So protein is then really the most important thing to consider when we look at the different macronutrients. I'm sure your audience are fairly educated, but you know, adequate protein intake is something that I've certainly observed as being a difficulty, um, especially for people you know in their 50s plus where Back in their day, when they were young, it just wasn't something that they considered. So they have built certain food habits, behaviors uh, over time. So they're trying to change their food preferences to something that favors protein is really challenging and takes a little bit of creativity. And again, it's not something that I think has to happen overnight, but being proactive about it. And okay, if I enjoy eating, primarily a Mediterranean cuisine, or I, I really enjoy, like I love pasta and pizza, you know, how can I possibly still enjoy those things and still get high protein? Well, it's definitely possible, but I think getting a little bit creative in the kitchen and just asking those questions is a great place to start because ultimately the the best way or the fastest road to success is finding a dietary approach that you enjoy and that you can stick to and sustain long-term. And that's why we see so many people having great success on the ketogenic diet or, you know, intermittent fasting or low-carb, high-fat, something of that nature. So incorporating protein and practicing that over time. And then I think the other thing that I would say is incredibly beneficial to helping increase your BMR is to not be in a calorically restricted state for too long. And unfortunately, that happens a lot. And I will be the first person to pick on my own mum and uh, a couple of my friends who have definitely restricted their calories for a long time as a means of managing their weight. And the problem with chronic calorie restriction is that the human body is incredibly intelligent and it's also incredibly robust. And in order to accommodate such low energy intakes and calories, it goes about things in a very clever way to protect us from starvation. So, what we end up seeing is a lot of adaptations are taking place. So, our body starts to become far more efficient in all of its mechanisms to enable you to continue doing what you've got to do on your thousand calorie per day diet. And you know, I've seen other things that are awful, you know, the the shape diets and the these programs, these meal replacement shape programs where you're eating, you know, under a thousand calories a day. And it's it's just not something that's sustainable long term. And if you do it, and I'm sure people do, there is a lot of adaptation that can can occur.
0: Yeah. So we have this situation where we see people, they have some initial success. Let's just take an, a hypothetical uh, example here where somebody will cut their calories, they'll ramp up their cardio, probably ignoring the, the strength training and they have success. They lose weight, mm-hmm. right? They lose that 10 pounds. And then they, to your point, the body's really, really good at adapting and it wants to find this stasis. And then all of a sudden they plateau. And as opposed to regaining the weight back, this person thinks, well, okay, I just need to lower my calories and up my cardio. And so they do. They up their cardio. They're doing it every day of the week now. They've down to 1,200 calories and lo and behold, they lose some more weight. And then that plateaus. And now what happens is this person has put themselves in a corner. Where do they go from here, right? And at this point, I think we can say they're starting to get metabolically unhealthy. To your point, the body's very, very clever at shutting certain things down. It's very catabolic. I don't want to have any muscle because I can't metabolically afford any muscle. Let's get rid of that. And we have kind of this cascading effect. And yet this person is convinced that, well, if I just fix the calorie balance, or if I just fix the energy balance, if I can just expend more energies than I eat. I'll keep losing weight. But that doesn't work forever, does it?
1: Mm -mm. No, it, it certainly does not. And you will reach a point, I think, at which where it is just no longer sustainable. And this is where I said when we first started talking, I think many people are able to have fairly good success in the initial fat loss phase, where they'll restrict, they'll you know implement some kind of fairly extreme or aggressive caloric restriction or Let's look at the other part of weight loss, which is your energy expenditure. You know, they'll do a whole lot more activity to lose that weight because both those things can achieve a calorie deficit. So, you know, they'll keep burning the candle at both ends. And then they get to this point where it's like there's nothing left. Like, where do you go? And all the while, as that is happening, we're now not only having these, I guess, restrictions in calories and extra energy being expended from training, we're seeing a a myriad of different physiological uh, negative physiological effects. We're starting to see increases in hunger. We've got hormones that are now uh, starting to lower beyond a point at which there is chronic like hunger and huge appetite being or developed. So your appetite regulating hormones, leptin, and really start to play havoc on your hunger levels. We start to see sleep impairments. We know that chronic uh, low-calorie intakes and excessive exercise negatively impact our our sleep, especially our REM REM deep sleep. We start to see changes in our libido, you know. That goes down with chronic calorie restriction. Mood. There's so many, like, depressive symptoms that start to come about from all of this. So uh, you can only sustain that for so long. Before you're going to crack and it is inevitable. And I can say as an elite athlete who gets on stage and does this for two weeks of my life, that's it. Like I am not maintaining that body composition for a long period of time because it is not sustainable, certainly not without a significant impact or sacrifice on my personal happiness and my life. So yeah. Yeah but the thing is you can you can get out of this and I'd, I'd love to talk about that.
0: Well, that's no that's a perfect segue. So okay, so <laughs> somebody listening to this who's just had a history of dieting and maybe they're in this place now, right, where they're just frustrated, they've they've hit this wall and they they're at a thousand calories and to your point, where do you go from there, right? 800, 700, mm-hmm. that's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. How do we get, how do we get out of this cycle?
1: Yeah. So this is actually the perfect segue into the co- the conversation about reverse dieting. So it's probably been around now for about 10 years. I know I first kind of stumbled across the concept of reverse dieting in 2012. Actually, my now husband, Dr. Lane Norton, he kind of coined this term back then and he was kind of observing this with a lot of his clients, though there was very limited. In fact, there was no research on this in the um, you know, scientific world at this time. But anecdotally, he would report this on his social media channels and I found it fascinating. So we actually ended up going on to write a book about it. And since then have been several uh, research studies that kind of look into to this topic. So, you know, you're at this point where you're stuck. One would assume that if you go back to eating at your previous baseline calories before you started, well, most people just regain all that weight. And some, as we're observing, you know, especially in the case of people that are doing extreme dieting where they're so hungry and they push themselves so hard and did so much activity that when they do finally crack and they've got these appetite regulating hormones driving them to eat and to recover the lost weight, they rebound well beyond their starting weight. So I think the key to minimizing yourself being in that situation, first and foremost, is not to diet aggressively, taking a more of a conservative approach. But coming out of that, it also requires a strategy. We need to be, you know, structured and have a plan in the diet after the diet. So a conservative reintroduction of calories uh, over a period of many weeks to months is really the ideal approach to kind of coming out of that diet without regaining unnecessary amounts of body fat. So you can reverse diet um, in several ways. I guess you can do it very conservatively. You can do it modestly. You can do it aggressively. The arguments of uh, the arguments for each of those categories really would be, if you go conservative, it means that the calorie reintroduction is quite slow. It's very little at the time. So it might be that you're adding... calories each week. So if you finished your diet at 1,200 calories, you're adding for week one after your diet, you're only taking your calories up by 3%, which is negligible. So that may very well limit the amount of body fat that you regain and it will give your metabolism time to adapt and potentially gain nothing at all. There is an adaptive nature to the human metabolism where no change in weight may occur. But that is a very tall order and not many people can keep the cognitive discipline, you know, that's required to do that. And at some point, maybe they do still crack. So, you know, in that case, perhaps a better approach to the reverse diet is to be a bit more um, modest with that. Maybe do some slightly bigger calorie increases. I'm talking five to eight percent additions each week. So it's a little bit more manageable, not only from the hunger perspective, we want to make sure that you're able to maintain those calories, but also from the psychological desire and drive to eat. And for many of you guys, if you have dieted, you know, you're normally pretty you're normally feeling pretty fatigued and exhausted at the end. So part of the benefit of adding back calories may be a little more aggressively, but in a controlled fashion. Is that you start to recover your, you know, energy levels, your performance starts to improve again. You're back to lifting the, the weights that you were you're lifting. And now what are we doing? If we're lifting more weight, we've got more volume each week. Well, now you're potentially contributing to some positive gains in clean body mass. Your muscle is starting to come back on if some was lost, and that's normally inevitable in a fat loss phase. You're now giving yourself that opportunity to start adding muscle back. So some of that initial weight regain can be from fat mass, of course, but some of that weight regain may also be muscular because you're now, you know, you've got some calories back in the tank and you have the ability to actually start putting on muscle because you're no longer in a deprived state. So, yeah.
0: I, I love that you bring that up, that we you may have some potential weight gain in this reverse diet. So a lot of I mean we have we we certainly we start up we talked about we have a food culture and we certainly do, but it seems like we have a diet culture and we have a scale obsession. Mm -hmm. So when you have clients that are terrified about the scale going north, even an ounce, Mm -hmm. how do you how do you pitch the importance of reverse dieting?
1: It's so incredibly hard. I think That's the hard part, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it really is. And I think t- I, I'm very fortunate to be in a position now where I think a lot of my audience have um, grown and come to trust the information and they've put it to practice and they've gone, wow, this actually works. Right. You know, they've they've tried everything, you know, 20 years of different diets, trying these things and they haven't worked. And then they finally come back to me and they go, oh, Holly, yeah, you're right. I realize that this reverse diet cycling stuff actually actually has some merits." Sorry. I, I'm fortunate in that sense, but I think, you know, you'll never know if you don't give this a try. And I think if you can kind of paint the picture that what's going to happen during these phases of fat loss and reverse dieting is that, yes, during the fat loss phase, we are going to see your weight the scale going down. That's, that's guaranteed if you're doing everything correctly. During the reverse diet, it's likely and probably I would make it a a requirement that there's going to be some weight regain. So yes, the scale will come back up, but it should never go or exceed the starting weight. But the benefits are that it gives your metabolism a break. You recover that and you get your calories back to a place and you adapt back to a place that is really maintainable. Um, And hopefully your end of reverse diet calories are back to where you started but guess what you're also not back at that same weight so we do this cycle of fat loss and reverse dieting for you know let's say it's a period of 24 weeks you do that do that over six months and then we repeat that process we then diet again your weight goes down and it dips well below what you achieved last time and that you're at a new all-time low and then when we reverse the calories come back up you get them back to where they were and each time you're able to make some kind of progress, whether it is weight loss on the scale, you're getting your body fat down each time, and or you're, be, you're able to get your calories back to an amount that feels really comfortable. You can socialize, you can have a drink at Christmas, you can eat all the you know pecan pie at Thanksgiving. So it is so beneficial, but it is timely. And the biggest challenge I have with clients is just getting them to be patient. It's it's so yeah. frustrating, and just even holding them at a period of maintenance. It's like, okay, I don't want to keep driving your calories up. You're, you're telling me you're full. You're you know you're training well. It's let's just maintain, and we'll hang out here for ten weeks. Just getting people to commit to some stability and maintenance is really tough. But the end of it all, they always kind of say, I'm so glad I did that. Like that was, that was so beneficial. So trust.
0: (laughs) Right. Trust and patience are are two keys (laughs) there. Yeah. Cause it's tough for, you know, somebody who's struggled with their weight their entire life. Again, by the time they're, you know, 50s, 60s or so, they've, they've gone on a lot of diets and for their coach to tell them, okay, we're going to start reverse dieting now and you're going to see the scale go up a little bit, but trust me, we're just going to do this process. But in the end, Holly, what I think I hear you saying is if somebody responsibly puts these practices into their life incorporates them into their lifestyle at the end of their say this cycle of dieting and reverse dieting they should end up being able to eat more calories Mm -hmm. at this lower weight than when they started right which sounds completely it sounds counterintuitive right that I can Mm -hmm. at the end of all of this work I'll be able to eat more calories every day and maintain a lower weight am I saying that right
1: Absolutely. Yes. And I would encourage you to think about this for anyone that's listening and is thinking about this or like terrified of what we just talked about. Right. But let's say you are 50 years old and it takes you two years to go through these cycles. So we do, that would be what, two cycles of fat loss a year and two cycles of reverse dieting a year. So we're talking about, you know, eight in total over the course of two years. If that meant at the end of two years, you are now at your ideal body weight and you're at your ideal calories, you still got how many years left ahead of you to enjoy all of that? Enjoy those calories, enjoy that new physique. So it's a small price to pay if we think about things from a long term perspective. And I think a lot of us really struggle with what's called recency. If we look at some of the literature around what what is linked or what are the behaviors and characteristics linked to long term weight loss maintenance success? It's that, that these people have incredible recency. They are able to delay what they want right now, knowing that there is something positive for them in the future. Uh, and again, we, it kind of just comes back to delayed gratification, you know, having patience. And yes, we all suck at it. But I think as long as we can all acknowledge that and take some accountability, and then put these practices in place. Like there is good things coming at the end.
0: <laughs> yeah, and as a culture, we have this instant gratification culture, right? And oh, yeah. I think that that's that's marketed to us, right? That's what's that's what we're being told is, hey, you can lose ten pounds in ten days, and here's this fat loss detox smoothie. Just drink this every day and burn fat magically while you sleep, and. I get the appeal of those things. That would be fantastic if that actually worked, but that's not the reality. The reality is you're talking about a two-year cycle here. So mm-hmm. let's break that apart a little bit. Just want to make sure I understand the timing on this. So if somebody's saying, well, wait, okay, so two years, and you said six months. So what would a two-year block look like? How much time would I be? And I know it's going to vary from person to person, mm-hmm. but just take a, a, general, a gen pop person, How long would they be in that diet phase versus how long in that reverse diet phase? And how would that look time-wise?
1: Yeah, so I think the periods at which someone's in a fat loss phase kind of depends, again, on how much weight somebody is looking to lose and also their preference for a dietary approach. We can do diets uh, in two ways, essentially. We can do them continuous in nature where somebody says, I'm starting the diet tomorrow and I'm going to do it through to March of 2022. Or we can take an approach where there is um, diet breaks. So I'm sure your audience are probably familiar with the concept of diet breaks or periods at maintenance. And, you know, if we do that approach, again, there is so many benefits of taking these kind of little hiatuses from the fat loss, not only uh, physiologically, but psychologically as well. So I kind of work with a client and decide, what would be your preferred approach? Are we looking at this from, I don't care if I lose some of my muscle, but I just want to get the fat off. And that might be in the case of somebody that is morbidly obese, they are 250, 300 pounds, maybe more, then I'm probably not going to be as concerned about losing some muscle. In which case, I want them motivated, I might do a shorter, more aggressive fat loss phase without any diet breaks because they're able to lose quite a lot of fat in a short period of time. But let's take the average person, average body fat, and we're just working through a normal cycle. It might be 15 weeks of fat loss, and I will probably always put in for my clients at least you know three diet breaks, or 21 days where you're just at maintenance, and it might be to accommodate Thanksgiving, Christmas parties, or... New years, you know, you've got these periods where you can come up for air. That might be a fifteen week block, and then we will do a fifteen to twenty week reverse diet. Not all of those weeks may necessarily be adding calories. It might be just trying to get them out of a hot spot where it's really unmanageable to an amount of calories that they're like, you know, I've got this. I can actually do that. It's realistic, and I feel okay with my training. So we might just do, you know, twelve weeks of reversing, and then we'll just maintain for another ten weeks or so. But 20 weeks is about the minimum time frame that I usually reverse somebody for to fully recover. And I can honestly say, even for me as somebody that competed back in August, only now, you know, in a week after Thanksgiving, am I really starting to feel like I've recovered? I'm not obsessed with food. I'm not looking at the food channels on my Instagram scrolling, you know, I'm not thinking about my next meal. So it takes a while to recover. And I think that is really important and valuable because it sets you up for a more successful fat loss phase in the future. So yeah, you go through these phases, 15 15 weeks of fat loss, 15 to 20 weeks reversing and so on and so forth. But the total amount of weight that someone might lose in a two-year period really is going to depend on that person. And yeah, I I think from if we look at this, we'll break it down into something a little bit smaller week-to-week weight loss I normally normally don't try to push somebody's weight uh, loss to be more than, say, 1.5% of their body weight per week. So that number's going to look very different for you as it is going to look very different to me. So I don't usually work with absolute values, but you can do a bit of math there.
0: Yeah, so there's, I think people might be surprised when they hear you say that you're recommending a reverse dieting phase that long. And that's kind of what I wanted to pull out of that. Mm-hmm. Now, another question on reverse dieting, what about the dieter who's just not very consistent? They're not hitting that calorie goal each and every day and a couple of days, maybe even three days a week, maybe they're blowing it out on the weekends. Mm-hmm. Is reverse dieting, would it be appropriate for somebody who's not very, they're basically they're taking diet breaks during the week. Let's put it that way. Is that still a concept? Is that because let's face it, it happens, right? Would there still be some value in reverse dieting for somebody who's maybe a little more of that casual dieter? Let's just say.
1: Oh, absolutely. Look, I think in our book, we kind of describe the different categories of individuals. We've got five populations that they are beneficial for. I won't go into the detail on all of those today. If you guys are interested, you can certainly go and check that out. But yes, absolutely. I think there's a bit of a misconception that you have to be perfect every day. That is not the case. I think the way that I tend to work with clients and for myself as well is we look at your total calorie intake over the course of a seven-day period, or that might even extend to a 14-day period. So what really matters as it it pertains to a reverse diet and gradually increasing those calories is what was your calorie intake over this first seven-day block? You may have like, okay, Friday and Saturday, maybe you do go out for dinner. I do that every week. Like I'm, I'm very, we do do a lot of entertaining. We're out for business stuff all the time. We are eating out. So, but I'm going to structure my calories so that I've got that flexibility for those social events. But that might mean on other days, I'm more cognizant of my food choices. I might have lower calories. So long as my average weekly calorie intake is slowly over time trending up, then yes, effectively, you can still do a successful reverse diet. The challenge lies when it is very, very inconsistent from day to day, because it's hard to get a real pinpoint on what someone's true. And what I mean by that is, you know, let's say that the night that you go out for dinner with your friends and you're having something that's more calorie dense that day, you might be a couple of cocktails as well, or some beers with friends. You might have a very low in fiber intake. And that might not be normal for you. Your other days, your fiber intake would be significantly higher. So with not only large fluxes in calories, but also large fluctuations in your fiber intake, which has a physical mass, and that contributes to weight on the scale, we start to see a lot of yo-yo from one day to the next. And that can feel very disheartening for somebody. You know, if they hop on the scale and they've done so well for the five days of the week and they've seen their weight pretty stable to do that on the the Saturday and then they hop on and they're like, oh my God, I'm up four pounds or yeah. whatever it is that can be enough to psychologically throw them into this. Well, I, I screwed up. I'm just going to do whatever I want. And all of a sudden now they do really mess up the diet and then gone from 1200 calories to 2,500 in, you know, the space of a couple of days. And that type of behavior is something that we would want to minimize. And I mean, I, that's something that I work with, with clients on. I mean, it's it's important to kind of establish good dietary behaviours before we can invest ourselves in a really hardcore goal. So a lot of the time it might be, hey, before we even think about fat loss, so before we even think about trying to reverse diet, let's just work on some solid foundational behaviours. What are you doing? Like, tell me about your life. How do you eat? What do you like to eat? And let's look at the problems and so let's see if there's anything that we can do to get you on a, a park for... You know, more success when we do start to action. You know, a specific goal.
0: Yeah, that's very, very well said. I I think you're absolutely right. I mean, we have to understand that what we're looking for is to weave these new behaviors into the very fabric of your existence. Right? This is going to be a part of. If you if you think of it as a diet, is this? obnoxious, odious thing that I don't want to do, and I'm only going to do it until I lose the weight, then you're going to be a yo-yo dieter, right? But if you can reframe that mindset to say, okay, this is an act of self-love. I'm going to start honoring my body with the way I eat, and I'm going to be more conscious about it. And so this is, I'm going to make a change in how I approach this, that those are two very different things, right? That diet and that, okay, I'm, I'm going to start honoring my body with the food choices I make. And yeah, I, I think that's very well said. So, Holly, what's what's next for you? You've obviously you've accomplished a lot. What's what's on the horizon for you?
1: Good question. Right now, we are uh, hard at work, um, actually building a platform. I guess for our coaching team. Sorry, I'm kind of doing a lot of, I guess, sitting at the top and having a lot of meetings with our board of directors and. Planning for the future, so we're doing a lot of scaling at the moment for uh, one of our companies. But I think personally, i I am downsizing. I'm trying to reduce my uh, time in the gym and to give me more time for business and you know family and all that kind of thing. So yeah, I I don't really have a, a solid plan at the moment. I think we're just kind of focused on work and just growing the companies that we have. Obviously, we've got our supplement range carbon diet coach we're up to forty thousand subscribers which is incredible in just over 18 months we're building a new or an app-based workout builder so currently we have a platform which enables people of all experience levels beginners advanced to select different types of workouts different goals and kind of record all their training and we're we're about to kind of move that to an app-based platform so uh, there's a lot of tech talk and calls so yeah. that's kind of the, the the current future and we just we just moved house. Whole lot of fun stuff.
0: <laughs> Whole lot of fun stuff, yeah. Yes. All all centered around health and nutrition and exercise. I absolutely love it. Mm-hmm. Well Holly, if people wanna learn more about you, they want to connect with you, what's the best way?
1: I think I'm most active on my Instagram page. So that is Holly Baxter. And uh, also YouTube. So my handle is exactly the same. But if you wanted to follow me personally, that's where you will find me. I put all my education and good stuff on there. And then across our companies, they are Carbon Diet Coach. Uh, We have an Instagram page for that. Our team, Bioline Coaches. And then Outwork Nutrition is our supplement company, which also has a pretty cool educational um, Instagram page too. So that's about it. (laughs)
0: That's about it. Okay. And folks, I will drop all of that into the show notes so that you can check that out and certainly encourage you to go check out her Instagram. That's Holly, that's where I found you. I know you have a great YouTube, Facebook, and obviously I'm aware of some of your other businesses as well. So Holly, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing all of your wisdom and your knowledge with us. And I wish you all the best in all your future endeavors.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it
0: okay folks that's our show for this week i hope you enjoyed today's conversation as much as i did you can find all the links to the resources we discussed in this episode over at silveredgefitness.com episode 98 And you can continue the conversation over there as well. I'd love to hear your thoughts and comments on today's show. As we wrap up our time together today, you can always show your support for this show in two important ways. One is to tell a friend about this podcast and encourage them to give it a listen. The second is to give this podcast a five-star review on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on and be sure to subscribe and follow so you don't miss any future episodes. And don't forget, if you're interested in my 10-pound fat loss program, it's 50% off for the remainder of December. You can learn more over at silveredgefitness.com or by emailing me at coach at I really appreciate you spending your time with me today. And until next time, stay strong. Holly is a two-time Holly is a two-time natural world champion Holly is a two-time blah blah blah, blah. <clears throat> Come on Kevin. Holly is a two-time natural world champion fitness model and she has her master's degree in dietetics and she's an accredited is an accredited is an accredited dietitian is a fitness educator and along with her husband lane norton were early pioneers in the fields in the field of reverse dieting come on kev holy moly